Okay, so we are in this series called The Story of Stories, and um, you know, we have a, a few more parts uh, to, this, to this grand story. Uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to start our vision series uh, on October 16th, and, and we're really excited about that, uh, to do that together uh, as, as a church. Uh, but today is actually a huge day in the, in the story uh, that we've been tracing. And so we are in Mark chapter 1. Um, what, what we see right off the bat in this gospel is um, like a tie-in with the story of the Old Testament. And so if you've been here through the series, uh, then, then maybe the, all of these pieces are right there and just sitting in front of you, and you're seeing how they connect. If you haven't been around, j- just real, real quickly, uh, what, what, we've, what we've been tracing is the fact that the Bible begins with a declaration that God created the world. That this world came into being because God, in his, in his generosity, be, be, began this creative work and started to, to make something out of nothing. And when God was done with it, God said, this is so good. This, this whole thing is good. Everything works right. Every relationship is right. Every system works right. It's all good. And the first humans, Adam and Eve, the Bible says, walked with God. And that's indicating to us that humans had a perfect relationship with God, that all was right, that there was a wide open door and relationally there was a connection between mankind and God. But in just the third chapter of the Bible, we find out that that is ruined. Uh, Sin enters the world and, and sin is just anything that's contrary to God's good design. And the original order of the world, everything was according to God's good design. Everything was right. And then in chapter 3, there's this step of rebellion where Adam and Eve decide instead of trusting God, which is one of the systems that was working right, they they rejected that system and they decided to do their own thing and to trust their own judgment and to make their own decisions. And when they did, that uh, invited sin into the world. Sometimes I, I, I like to use the phrase, the vandalism of shalom. Shalom means everything right. And in Genesis 3, uh, it was vandalized. And God meets with Adam and Eve and he says, you know, what, what you've done is bad, but it's way worse than what you think. And as God begins to reveal to them the severity of what sin is now going to do to this world, right in the middle of all of that, and it's, it's such bad news. It's just basically everything was right, everything was good, and it's all going to be tainted now. It's all going to be bent away. It's all going to have this, 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 uh, this corruption to it. And so relationships aren't going to work right. Gardening. It, I mean, when Adam and Eve did gardening, like it always worked out. They loved it, and everything that they planted grew. How's it go for you? Like, I'm, I'm the worst gardener ever. Everything we try to plant dies. And it's like, that, that's because sin's in the world. I would have been a good gardener in the Garden of Eden, but not now. And so while all this bad news is happening, right in the midst of all that, as God is talking with Eve about the consequences of, of her decision, he actually, he puts this little whisper of hope. And he says that your offspring is going to crush Satan. It's going to crush the one who, who tempted you, the one who is, is, is kind of this, this cause of why sin showed up in your story. He's going to get crushed. And scholars refer to that as the first gospel, that right there in Genesis 3, there's this hint that, that God's actually going to go to work to fix this. And it's going to be through the, the children of Eve, through the child of Eve, through the, the seed of Eve. 
And so the story unfolds, and what we begin to see is that time after time after time, the lineage of Eve is in danger. It's always in danger of getting wiped out. Right off the bat, she has two sons. And you're like, okay, offspring of Eve, let's go, let's go. Come on, let's, let's go crush Satan. Well, what ends up happening instead is that uh, there's, there's two brothers, and one brother, Cain, kills the other brother, Abel. So Abel's out of the picture. And then because Cain did what Cain did, Cain was cursed. And Cain's out of the picture. And you realize, like, oh man, I thought it was going to be the offspring of Eve that were going to crush Satan. And now the offspring of Eve are both out. And then we get this great verse of hope in Genesis chapter 4, that Eve had another son. And her offspring is preserved. You go to the story of Noah, and the world has gotten totally corrupt. And God says, I'm going to wipe it out and start over. Well, if that happens, then the offspring of Eve is wiped out too. So what does God do? God provides an ark and rescues a family. And that family is in the lineage of Eve and the seed is preserved and Noah and his family survived the flood and there's a restart to the earth. A few chapters later, God comes along and taps a guy on the shoulder named Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you're my guy. I'm gonna work through you. There's gonna be a nation that I wanna call, that I wanna call my own. You're gonna be my own people. And the rest of the Old Testament then is a tracing of this family. It's, it's of the line of Eve, and now it's a family. And then that family becomes a nation, the nation of Israel. And all throughout the Old Testament, nation, the nation of Israel is constantly in danger. And yet time and time again, God provides for them and rescues them and preserves the lineage, preserves that line, the offspring of Eve. We see them become a kingdom, a quite powerful kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and then we see that kingdom crash and fall. And we saw that last week. And by the end of the Old Testament, we should be absolutely demoralized. All of the stuff, God, God gave them laws right from his hand to direct them. They couldn't obey them. God gave them prophets that spoke his word. They wouldn't listen. God gave them priests who brought the people to God and stood between the people and God. But the people wouldn't listen to the priests. And the priests themselves had a million problems. God gave them kings. Some of the kings were good. Some of the kings were bad. None of the kings were perfect. And the people often rejected the kings. And by the end of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is in shambles. Uh, they have gone through slavery and exile. And it's, it's a total mess. And the prophets have constantly said, the consequences for your, for your actions are going to be so severe. As we come to the end of the Old Testament and the nation of Israel is in shambles, there's a little whisper of hope. In the last book of the Old Testament, uh, the, of our Old Testament, it's called, it's called Malachi. In Malachi chapter three, there's just this little whisper that the promised one, the line of Eve, the offspring of Eve, it's still gonna happen. He's gonna come. And you say, oh, good. Oh, this is good, good, good. Okay, w w when's he coming? And then it's 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence, and the people of Israel are just a mess, basically, during those entire four, uh, four centuries. And then we get the New Testament. And if you were to open up to the first page of the New Testament, you open up to the Gospel of Matthew, and it starts off with a bang. In Matthew chapter 1, the, the, the author of that gospel, his name is Matthew, and he starts off talking about Jesus, and this is, this is what he tells us, that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Now think about this. Who is Abraham? Abraham is the guy that God tapped on the shoulder back in Genesis chapter 12. And that God made, you know, Abraham was in the line of Eve and God made these, these promises to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, through you, through your family, through this nation, I am going to do some, some incredible things. And here's what I promise you. That I promise you through your family, I promise you that, that a people, a seed, an, like that, that, that this, this line, this lineage is going to be preserved. He looks at Abraham and he says, not only am I going to provide for you a people, but I'm going to provide for you a place that, that where, where I am in right relationship with you, a land, a place. And then third, he says, through you, I'm going to bless the world. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless your nation, but through you and your nation, I'm going to bless the whole world. Incredible promises. And here's Matthew saying that Jesus is of the line of Abraham, who is of the line of Eve. Well, this is good. And then he says he's the son of David. Who is David? Well, we talked about David a little bit last week, but David is another person in Israel's story that God also made some promises to. And one of the biggest promises that he made to David was, your son is going to rule on the throne forever. And so now you've got David, who is of the line of Abraham, Abraham, who's in the line of Eve, and Matthew starts off his gospel by saying, hey, this Jesus that I want to tell you about, He's in that line. He's in that lineage. He's rightly called the son of Eve. He's rightly called the son of David. These are promises that have been tracing throughout the Old Testament. And Matthew starts right off by saying, I got really good news. You know all those promises? You know that line that God kept protecting all throughout the Old Testament? This guy was born in that line. This guy was part of that lineage that was preserved time and time again when things looked so bad. Jesus is in that line. See, Matthew wants everybody to see that the coming of Jesus, he wants to see clear connections, clear fulfillment of these huge Old Testament promises. Now, our scripture reading today was Mark chapter 1. So if you were to jump, if you have your Bible open in Mark chapter 1, you'll see in the first three verses, Mark does his version of tying Jesus to these Old Testament promises. And right off the bat, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah, Isaiah was one of the Old Testament prophets, and he quotes Isaiah. And he sneaks in there a little word from a guy we talked about it a second ago, Malachi. And so Mark takes Isaiah's words and Malachi's words both of whom promised that the promised one would actually show up. And Mark says, this is our guy. This is the one. Remember how Isaiah talked about him coming? This is him. Remember how Malachi talked about him coming? This is him. And a key indicator is that he would have this forerunner, this, this, this guy who would go first and say to everybody, get ready, the promised one is behind me. And that forerunner's name was John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist becomes a, a key indicator that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is on the way. So Mark mentions these prophecies, and he's making the connections with the Old Testament as tight as possible, just like Matthew did. They are not telling you, forget the Old Testament, Jesus is here. They're saying, remember the Old Testament? Remember all those incredible promises? Remember the first promise? 
In Genesis chapter 3, remember the promise of the seed of Eve? This is the guy. He's in the line. He's the one that we've been waiting for. And this is really good news. Well, now we see the promises fulfilled. Uh, and in the end of our text this morning, in Mark chapter 1, we, we, we see Jesus talk for the first time. And when Jesus talks, he starts talking about the fact that his kingdom is at hand. And so he's, he, this is a pretty grand idea. Jesus says, I'm bringing something to the earth that wasn't here before. I'm bringing something new. Specifically, we see in Jesus glimmers of the three promises that God had made to Abraham. What we see in Jesus is a people. We see in Jesus a place. And we see in Jesus a, a blessing. And let me, let me just show you, because these are the promises that the people of God had been waiting to have fulfilled. And Jesus is going to, he's going to bring some answers. So, so how does Jesus speak to God's people? Well, I said a second ago that God chose a family that became a nation known as Israel, and he chose them to be his people. And so God said, I'm going to work through you in a way that I'm not working through anybody else. There's something unique. And it's not because of you, Israel. You're not powerful. You're not that smart. You're not that beautiful. I'm picking you because I pick you. I'm picking you because I want to. And so he picks this people to become a nation known as the nation of Israel. And God begins to work in them. And God gives them his law on the mountain. He actually, the indication is that he took his finger and he wrote his law in, the, in stone. Giving them incredible resources. And yet, time and time again, the people of God, the nation of Israel, fail to trust and obey. The people of God can't get it together. They say they will, but they never do it. If they do it, they do it for two minutes and then they fall off the wagon again. It's a constant story of failure. But what is Jesus doing? Jesus shows up and Jesus is making a, a, a better people, a, a true and better Israel, the people of God. In Matthew chapter two, uh, we, we find out that they, they, the, uh, Matthew uses this phrase and he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. He's talking about Jesus. He says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And you say, what's that about? Well, I'll tell you. Jesus spent a few years of his childhood as a refugee in Egypt. Jesus and his family had to run for their lives and they ended up in Egypt. And when a time comes and God says to them, okay, it's time to go back to Israel, God calls them out of Egypt. And so it's God's son being called out of Egypt. But see what Matthew does? Matthew makes a connection that there was another people that were called out of Egypt. The nation of Israel was called out of Egypt. And guess what? They were the sons of God. They were the, they were the children of God, but they were a train wreck. This son of God, this is the ultimate one that God called up out of Egypt. This is the ultimate son of God who's actually going to be able to bring his people to fullness. Unlike Israel who failed, Jesus is actually going to succeed. Jesus, like Israel, goes on in his life. He spends time in the wilderness. You know, Israel spent 40 years roaming around the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days. And most scholars see that as a clear connection, 
that just as Israel wandered the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus wandered the wilderness for 40 days. But Israel in the wilderness failed in their temptation, constantly rejecting God, constantly cursing God. Jesus is in the, in the, in the, in the wilderness, and guess what? Jesus is tempted too. And you can read about that in Mark chapter 1. And yet Jesus passes the test. Jesus doesn't fail to obey God. He doesn't fail to trust God. And so he, he succeeds where Israel failed. Do you know, remember that Jesus chose 12 disciples? Anybody remember how many tribes of Israel there were? 12 tribes of Israel. And again, scholars see this as Jesus making connections for us, helping us realize that he's doing something new, that these are clear connections that point Jesus to making the ultimate people of God. What about God's place or God's land? Well, if you were to read through the Old Testament, you quickly find out that when God started to, to form this people, there was something called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a tent that went with them throughout the wilderness. And that was the unique place where human space and divine space overlapped. And they were invited into the tabernacle to meet with God and to talk with God. And throughout the desert, they, they constantly saw this space, this, this tent, as this unique place where God's presence dwelt. And if you went back into the Old Testament and read about it, they set up their entire camp to where it, it centers itself on, on the tabernacle. And it makes much of this, this, this reality of a tent in which God's presence dwells. When we get to the New Testament, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that Jesus took on a human body and came to earth and he dwelt among us. And you know what the word for, the, for dwelt is? Tent or tabernacle. And so the gospel of John is making the connections for us and saying, remember how God's presence was unique in the tabernacle all throughout the wilderness? Well, guess what? God's presence is unique in this tent too in this tabernacle, in the tabernacle of Jesus, who is walking the earth right now. Also reveals that Jesus is the true temple. When Israel actually gets into their own land, what we know as the promised land, they build a temple. And it's incredible. It's, it's glorious. I, I got to go to the Holy Land a few years ago. And, and there's only remnants there, but it, it's incredible. The temple is absolutely incredible. And it's a place, again, where human and divine space overlapped. Well, what happens in Jesus' life? I mean, Jesus becomes the ultimate example of where human and divine space overlap. But Jesus makes the connection himself. In John chapter 2, Jesus is talking about the temple. And he says, here's the deal. You're going to destroy this temple, and I'm, in three days, I'm going to build it back. And the people all think that Jesus is crazy because the temple took decades to build. And Jesus says, you're going to tear this temple down and I'm going to build it back in three days. The people don't know what he's talking about. But then he turns to his followers and he says, okay, I'm talking about myself. This is the ultimate temple. And you're going to destroy it. You're going to kill me. But I'm going to rise again in three days. Jesus is predicting what's going to happen to him, but he's associating himself with this unique presence of God in the, in the world, this unique place where God meets with his people. 
What Jesus is saying to the Israelites is they they don't know that the physical temple actually is going to be destroyed in just a few decades, in 70 AD. But Jesus is telling them this, if you want to meet with God, you can't go to a physical temple. You, You have to come to me, the ultimate temple. How do you meet with God? Jesus is saying you meet with God in in me, in Christ, through Christ. He is the one hope to be restored in our relationship with God. Jesus is the ultimate temple. How does Jesus speak to this promise of God's blessing? Well, we said last week, you know, Israel had a moment. I mean, they did have a moment where they were kind of on top of the hill. They were the most glorious nation for a minute. Uh, Other nations traveled to come and see their glory, to get their counsel. But boy, it was really a moment. I mean, it was a blink. As quickly as it came, it, it disappeared. What Jesus reveals is that he is the one true source of, of all blessing. And he not only pours it out on his people, but he pours it out on the whole world. You know, God said to Abraham, I am going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your nation And then through that, I'm going to bless the whole world. Well, what is the most perfect example of God blessing the whole world through the line of Abraham? It's the savior of the world. It's the fact that Jesus would actually come. John chapter 3, verse 16, the most famous verse in the Bible, says that God so loved the world that he gave his son. That he he, he sent his son to come do something for us. God so loved the world This this is a blessing upon the whole world. And so these three great promises that Abraham got, God's, God's people, God's place, God's blessing, Jesus shows up and reveals that all of these promises are being answered in him. He has something to say about all of those promises, and it's absolutely incredible. And when you think about that third and final one, God's blessing, you begin to realize that these words that he shares in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, in verse 15 he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying, this is what I showed up for. I showed up to to declare this good news, that I have come to rescue the world, that I've actually come to restore the world into right relationship with God. You know, you say, what is the gospel? He says, repent and believe the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, well, the gospel is the good news that God is going to rescue and redeem the world from sin through the person and work of the promised one, through the person and work of Jesus. That's the declaration. It's not advice. It's not advice on how to live a good life. It's news. It's the declaration of this promised one and what he has done to make the world right again. That news, the fact that this promised one would rescue the world, that is what all the Old Testament people were called upon to believe looking forward. None of this had happened yet. And Abraham and David and Isaiah, all of these Old Testament people, they they were asked, look forward and believe that God is going to keep that promise. As we read the New Testament, all of these people are in real time. Jesus is right beside them. And what are they asked to do? They are asked to believe that this Jesus that's talking right here is actually going to do it. And so they're supposed to believe that in real time. And then what about you and me? Well, we're called on to believe it by faith, looking backwards. So the Old Testament saints had to look forward in faith. 
The New Testament people had to look in real time and believe it. And you and I get the benefit of looking in the rearview mirror and saying, do do I believe that this one, this promised one who showed up now 2,000 years ago actually did this work, actually could bring this kind of rescue, this kind of redemption, this kind of reconciliation to the world? You see, the promise of the gospel is that through faith in Jesus, one can actually be reunited to God. That's the news, that through Jesus's work, you can actually be brought back to the one who created this world and who you were made for. The promise of the gospel is that your heart can go from being dead to being alive, spiritually speaking. The promise of the gospel is that there's a future with God and with people that is perfect bliss. These are the promises of the gospel. This is what it means for the world to be rescued and redeemed from sin. For all that that tragic reality of Genesis chapter 3, when sin flooded into the world, Jesus is coming to resolve that, to take it back. You see, Jesus comes on the scene, and he's presented as the answer to all the promises of the Old Testament, including the long-awaited one, that he's the seed of Eve, that he's the one who will finally crush Satan. Now, that's all really good news, but this can't be the end. We're in Mark chapter one. This is the beginning of Jesus' life. And so that's all cool stuff to say. But what about actually crushing Satan? What what about actually doing the work? What about actually resolving this? I mean, do you think Satan is just going to let Jesus show up and say, hey, good news. I'm I'm here to redeem the world. And Satan's going to be like, oh, shucks. You know, he showed up. No no way. And and as we track Jesus' life, we see the fact that Satan is not going to stop. He's he's not going to sit back and let this guy just go do what he says he's going to do. Just like through the entire Old Testament, the, the line of Eve is constantly in danger. There's constantly attempts to wipe it out. Think about the life of Jesus. The promise is threatened again. And you could say threatened again and again and again. If we were to go to Matthew chapter 2, I referenced it a second ago. But one of the rulers of the time, his name was Herod, he said, we got to wipe out this Jesus, but I'm not sure what he looks like. I just have an idea of the village that he came from. I know that he's a boy, so here's what we're going to do. I want you to kill everyone under three years old in the whole village, every boy. Kill every boy under three. Now, scholars assume, they, they guessed that that was between 10 and 30 boys. And in Herod's mind, they were all disposable to wipe out Jesus, to wipe out the line of Eve, to wipe out the offspring who would crush Satan. Herod killed all of them to try to get to Jesus. But an angel had warned Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, and they got out of there before Herod showed up. And that's when they went to Egypt. And the seed, the line, the the offspring of Eve was preserved again. Now think about this story that we've been tracing. It's taken a long time to unfold. From from Genesis chapter 3 to Matthew chapter 1 is at least 6,000 years. 6,000 years. One story. 6,000 years. And it's been unfolding time and time again. All of these scary moments. All of these times where there seemed to be no hope. All of these times where the seed seemed like it was not going to make it. And yet God 
was at work in the world. And he was at work in the scariest of moments. Can you relate to that? Man, you you might be in that boat right now. You, You might be looking at your life right now and you are saying, I don't know if I've experienced a more scary moment than this moment right here. I I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how I could ever survive this. I think God must have forsaken me. God must have quit on me because it is so bad. Well, listen, that is one of the reasons why knowing this story and being able to hold on to this story is so important for us. Because when we know this story, we know that God is not out of the picture, even in the darkest moments. That God is still on the throne of the world. That God is still at work, even when things seem like they are a train wreck. God is at work in the scariest of moments. We saw that in our story today with Jeff and Kate. We saw it in stories in weeks past where God in his grace is, is, is present and with us even when it's dark, even when it's scary. You see, the story of the Bible is a story of waiting It's a story of close calls. It's a story of suffering. And it is a story of patience. A story of patience in the face of the unknown and patience in the face of fear. So here we are, Jesus as a child. Herod tries to wipe him out. But this is not the first time that Satan tries to orchestrate the destruction of the offspring of Eve. And it's not the last. He keeps coming again and again. Jesus and his family escape this one but the threats against Jesus just keep coming. Uh, Jesus, he, he meets Jesus in the wilderness and tempts him in the wilderness to try to get him to fail the test, but Jesus passes the test. He tries to get religious, religious leaders to kill him. He tries to get Roman leaders to kill him. Finally, the Bible crystal clear tells us that Satan gets one of Jesus' followers to betray him, to sell him out. And Jesus is arrested. He gets this kangaroo court ends up with a conviction. He gets put on a cross. He is killed there. And in one of the darkest moments in the Bible, he is buried in a tomb. And you can read about that at the end of Mark's Gospels, chapter 14 and 15. When that stone rolls over the, the, the tomb, you know, we, we have a service called Good Friday. And on our Good Friday service, we, we own it. We own how dark and how devastating Good Friday would be. We, we leave this auditorium on Good Friday in silence. We ask you not to talk to anyone, to, to, to go to your car, feeling the weight of what it would be like to have this long-awaited one now dead in a tomb. Think about Satan. Boy, finally he's done it. He, he's, he's removed the threat from Genesis 3. The seed of Eve didn't crush Satan, Satan crushed the seed. You see, Satan doesn't quit until Jesus is dead in the tomb. But in the greatest twist in the history of the world, Jesus rose from the dead. You see, we have this, this, it does not help us that we are so familiar with this story. Because to us, it's like, why? I know, I know when the stone rolled over the grave. Like, I know what happens. Like, Easter, I mean, I've been to Easter services before. He rose again. But listen, put yourself in those shoes. Put yourself in those shoes and realize what would it have been like for all of these promises to have been met in Jesus and then to have him dead in the tomb. 
If you've watched the Chronicles of Narnia, there's an effort to try to associate the emotions of, of having Aslan, the lion, be killed. And to have the witch, who represents Satan, celebrating the fact that finally she's taking him, taking him out. And it is the greatest twist in the history of the world. And Jesus rises from the dead. And the Bible says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he crushed sin and Satan and all of our enemies. And he established the only means by which creation can be reunited to its creator. And he made the gospel declaration true. He made the gospel declaration real. In Mark chapter 1, he said he's going to do it. By the end of Mark's gospel, he's actually done it. And this is the bright light of the gospel that shines into our dark night of fear. You see, it seemed hopeless, Jesus dead in a tomb, and yet God was at work in that moment, the scariest moment in all of history. All the close calls of the Old Testament, man, none of them hold a candle to the death and burial of Jesus. Look, I know that you living out your story right now and me living out my story right now takes a lot of patience. There's a lot of turns on the road that, you know, of my own life that I, I really would have not chosen. I would have liked much more of a straight shot to what I was trying to do. And yet sometimes through my own choice, sometimes through the choice of others, sometimes for no known reason, there is just a, a, a curve in the road. There's just a left-hand turn that you don't see coming. And it takes a lot of patience to walk and trust God through this life. And there are so many unknowns. But listen, brothers and sisters, we do not have to be afraid. You, you might be here today with like legit health concerns or legit financial concerns or legit relational concerns Stuff that are legitimately scary. But what, it, what is your story? Where is your story going? What is the ultimate story that you actually believe you're living? This is the invitation of this whole series. is for you to be able to take your life and to dovetail your life into the grand story of the world and to realize that while my story is what I experience, it, go, it goes by quick. You know, the Bible says that our life here is like a vapor. It's like it's here and it's gone. It's like it's, you know, seven or eight or nine decades. Boy, they go by in a blink. And if that's all there is, man, then you do have reasons to be scared. You do have reasons to fall apart. But what if you're, through Christ, part of this grand story of God making all things new? Of God restoring this world to what he originally designed it to be? If that's your ultimate story, boy, do, is, isn't that good news? Do, do you know what the worst case scenario for the Christian is? The, the worst case scenario for those who have put their hope in Jesus is life eternal with God in a world where there is no sin, sorrow, suffering, or death. That is the worst case scenario. That's a pretty good outcome. And we get to inject ourselves into that story. Maybe you've heard that the Bible declares the phrase, fear not, or do not be afraid, hundreds of times. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. The, the Bible literally tells us, do not be afraid, hundreds of times. You know, maybe that bothers you, because life can be really, really scary. But my invitation to you is this, keep reading. 
Thankfully, the Bible does not just say, don't fear, don't, don't worry. What the Bible says is, don't worry because. Don't, don't worry because. You, know, you don't have to worry about tomorrow. You don't have to try to hold on to tomorrow because Jesus holds tomorrow. You don't have to hold on to your future because Jesus holds the future. You don't have to secure your place in the story. Jesus has already secured your place in the story. And Christian, this story leads to eternal joy. You know, it's, it's quite common for me to read a quote at funerals. And I read this at Luke's uh, funeral as well. But it's a paraphrase of a, a comment from C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia. And, and this, is what, this is what he says. When all the adventures of this life are over, we will realize that all these adventures were just the cover and the title page of a story that goes on forever and ever in which every chapter is better than the one before it. That, that, that is what Jesus won for the world. When that promise in Genesis 3 that there would be one who would come and crush Satan and make all things new, that, that person was Jesus. And what he did for us was secure that kind of a future. The invitation for you, the invitation for me, is to recognize that God has kept his promises and Christ has conquered our ultimate enemy and the invitation is wide open to you to come and to recognize that Jesus did what we most desperately needed him to do. We end our services with communion where we take the bread and we take the cup. And part of what we're doing here, as we're instructed on the pages of the Bible, is to remember him again until he comes. He's coming back. And in a few weeks, we're going to talk about what that means when he shows up. But right now, your invitation is to remember. Remember what he did for you. Remember the rescue that he made of your life. If our service will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for these, these incredible realities of promises kept, of you working through your son, Jesus, to rescue the world, and not just the world in general, but individual people, us included, by grace through faith. This is, this is something that you, that you give to us. It's not anything that we earned. Jesus didn't come because we deserved it. Je Jesus came because he wanted to rescue. Now the invitation is to believe that by faith to put our hope in the fact that Jesus is actually the one way for us to be made new, to be brought back. God, we thank you for this good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.